U.S. intelligence trying to figure out what really happened off the coast of Russia Tonight, last U.S. Week. officials fear what Vladimir Putin has yet to acknowledge, that a deadly explosion late last week in Russia was caused by a nuclear-powered missile. Five nuclear scientists, described as the elite of Russia's main nuclear test site, killed with two others when a small nuclear reactor exploded. They were testing an engine, thought to be for this new cruise missile. Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, the podcast where I talk to interesting and influential figures in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, and on this show I interview people about, oh, trending news stories, the overarching themes of Russia watching, and the ins and outs of life as a professional in this field. This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can contribute as much or as little of your hard-earned money as you like. Thank you very much to my active patrons. There are currently 25 of you. That's an all-time high. It's fantastic. It really helps out. Thank you very much, everybody. On today's show, we welcome back Matt Bodner, a journalist in Moscow who reports primarily on national defense and the space industry. His latest article for Defense News combines these two themes insofar as it's about the mysterious, apparently radioactive explosion reported on Russia's northern frontier on August 8th. In the article, Matt reviews the leading theories about what blew up, and he floats a particularly bold suggestion that Russia's so-called Skyfall nuclear-powered missile could be an entirely fake project designed to deter the United States. Matt told me why he thinks the prevailing guesses about Skyfall could be wrong, and what we know about the recent explosion, which killed seven people. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. We know absolutely nothing about this program if we're being completely intellectually honest with each other. To the point where, like, I don't even know if it's been confirmed that Skyfall is the NATO reporting name. It showed up in somebody's story over the past year about this, uh, in which they alleged... Trump called it Skyfall, didn't he? Or I forget. What did his tweet say? Yeah, yeah. And then, so then Trump called it Skyfall. And I think, I, you know, maybe he had a briefing where they told him about the Skyfall thing. Or he's just regurgitating some of the reporting that's come out in the past week over this incident. They're going to have to retcon the security reports, though, at this point, though. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's... I think we're, we're invested in Skyfall at this point. Yep. That's, you know, Trump Trump made it official. Yeah. But I don't think that anywhere publicly, officially, any NATO official has ever uttered the word Skyfall. Huh. And so I think that that kind of hits at the problem that I want to get at here with you guys today. We just don't know anything about this. It showed up a year ago, more than a year ago, March March 1st, 2018. Vladimir Putin gives this like fiery speech where he unveiled several nuclear Dr. Strangelove doomsday weapons and then vague reference of something about a nuclear-powered cruise missile, whatever the hell that actually is. Nuclear-powered cruise missile is not is not a descriptive term in any way whatsoever. And so obviously everyone was immediately scrambling to try to figure out what he actually meant by that. And I think by default, the general understanding of Skyfall at that point became that it's a nuclear-powered ramjet, which essentially is it's an engine where if it's moving fast enough when it starts, cooler air will come into the front, get compressed and heated by something inside the vehicle and expand it out the back. There's no, like, liquid fuel or anything like that, like you see in a jet engine or a rocket engine, a traditional rocket engine. And the reason that I think this became... 
the de facto understanding, and perhaps this is more an admission than it is a reflection of of the discourse. You know, just people I've talked to over the past year about this story when it comes up, uh, the general understanding is nuclear ramjet. And the reason that that is, is because in the 50s and 60s, the United States set off to do a nuclear cruise powered cruise missile because that was, you know, that was what was going on at the time, nuclear everything, right? That project got canceled. The nuclear ramjet was too big. It was like about the size of a freight train car. They got it moving, but it's not, it's hard to miniaturize it. And cruise missiles can't be, you know, the size of freight cars. Also, this kind of stuff, they're fundamentally bad ideas if you care about what happens after the war. Like the idea of a nuclear powered ramjet is, is it's the actual nuclear reactor aboard the missile that's doing the heating of the air in the chamber and shooting it out the back. This, of course, would make the air coming out the back radioactive. So you'd have a long trail of radioactive shit <laughs> along the path of this cruise missile takes. But again, uh-huh. there was at least an example of a nuclear powered propulsion system in history, and everyone just kind of assumed that's what it was. So when this incident happened last week, obviously a lot of concern. Everyone recently saw Chernobyl. We're all kind of on alert for that kind of story at this point. The, you know, the, the, was there, was there not an elevation of radiation in the region? This kind of thing. The assumption very quickly fell that this was a test of Skyfall. But as details have come out, I think that the case for Skyfall becomes less and less convincing. But I'll qualify that later. Can I ask you quickly? That I've read that U.S. officials allegedly think the Skyfall tests have been failing quite frequently. Is this the first one where there's been like a significant explosion or have they all exploded? Well, we just don't know. I, too, have seen those reports. So like, here's one of the one of the things that it's worth getting into. A lot of experts in the West have been kind of watching this program with obvious justifiable interests and have reported that there have been tests or evidence of tests out in kind of further out into the Arctic, a more remote area. And there have been some indications that there have been tests up there, but again, nothing confirmed. It's not clear if there were explosions when they failed or if the engine just doesn't light and it falls into the water. Again, there's just so much that we don't know about what this missile is, even on its basic design. So we're kind of searching for a phantom. Something exists. It's not clear what exactly it is. All that testing is happening somewhere else. Suddenly, we're now being told, or some some people are making the case, that tests of this missile were moved from this remote area in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic to Arkhangelsk region, which, of course, is a major shipbuilding hub. A lot of nuclear industry is up there, but it's also more densely populated. The location of this test, this explosion, was like 30, 40 kilometers from Severodvinsk, which is probably about 30 to 40 kilometers from Arkhangels. In miles, we're talking, what, 20 miles? Something like that, yeah. This give, is it not, to, give it to me in Imperial. Just, uh, uh, call it 20. Call it 20, 25, whatever. It's not far. And so it's like, if you if you're testing this missile that uses this nuclear propulsion system, and even in the most generous interpretation of how it works, still poses a radiation hazard when it works, and it's failing, why would you move this closer to a population center? So that's like, that's one of my first problems with the Skyfall theory. Not that I completely reject the Skyfall theory. It's just people, I think, I think too many assumptions are being drawn too soon without nearly enough information. So you can argue any number of things. So like if it's if it's not Skyfall, you, there are some some other things. Is it a phantom program? Does it not even exist at all? Cuz you you get at that in your story too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's start with the phantom program. It could be it could not. We don't know. Have there been tests? Possibly, probably even. We don't know. We don't know what form it is. I've talked to experts both sides the past week who put serious doubt that a nuclear powered cruise missile is even feasible just cuz you know the technology is not there. 
probably the easiest option would be nuclear ramjet. What the other options could be are much more science fiction-y. You know, the other options for nuclear propulsion apply much more to spacecraft, are much more believable in space propulsion uh, for various reasons. Because you need less less power and because you don't care about radiation or? Both. Yeah, yeah both yeah. of those are basically the reasons. You know, because the other options don't give you a lot of thrust. And then also you don't have a radi- you don't have to care about the radiation problem in space. Space is radioactive itself. That's why I think it might be a phantom program. I mean, the entire point of the project from the start was very clearly to, in the context of U.S. ballistic missile defense, that was how Putin pitched it. Why Russia needs such a weapon in the first place is, is to evade American missile defenses, which themselves, I would argue, is kind of a phantom program in its own way. I don't believe, you know, like, the missile defense thing is a different issue we can do other, another time, but I am a huge skeptic on it. It's interesting, though. Don't you feel like in the media, like maybe 10 years ago, there was a lot more sort of skepticism in reporting about it, and we all just kind of accepted, oh, it's for real now? Is that, I feel like that's kind of the narrative has shifted when it comes to missile defense. I think that there's much less skepticism about it now, sure. But not necessarily with good reason. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, everyone... I think he's just taking it at face value when the US, the U.S. government, for sure, at least talks about it like it believes it. And I think, like, you know, I said before, like, it concerns me that we might have a president that believes that it works. Because <laughs> um, right. if you make your calculations of what you're going to do, thinking that you have an, an invulnerable missile shield, you know, the implications are not great. But that's a different discussion. I think he probably thinks that the missile shield is just all the poor people that will <laughs> surround him or whatever. <laughs> no comment. No comment. So yeah, the entire reason Putin talked about this weapon, claimed Russia needed this weapon, was because it has infinite range, it's a cruise missile, so it's maneuverable, it's essentially a flying bomb drone, and so it can kind of just fly around the defenses, take all kinds of random, unpredictable routes, which, considering that if missile defense works at all, it works It works when you know exactly when it's coming, how it's coming, how fast it's going, all kinds of things that'll never happen in a perfect environment, or, or like in an actual scenario in which you'd need to use it. And so that was the context in which Putin was unveiling this stuff. So that coupled with kind of, I guess, the spurious nature of the technology that we assume could be used for such a thing makes me think that this pro- we'll never actually see this thing in service. I could be wrong. I don't know how committed they are to making it work. I suppose enough time. Could be in the air right now for all we know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Enough time, enough money, enough accidents, you know, conceivably you could make it work. But this again is all assuming that what exploded last week was Skyfall. And what if it's Poseidon? You said in your piece you talk about it could be an underwater vehicle. Is there any, is there greater reason to think it's that? I mean, they're, they're talking about testing it at sea and stuff. I don't know. I'd say it's a, it's a plausible one. I think that of the, of the super weapons, probably less a convincing argument just because I believe that stuff is being handled by a different nuclear research bureau, but I don't know offhand. So, like, it could have been that. It could have been also, like, atomic batteries for, like, seabed. Uh, Russia has a bunch of infrastructure that are laying on, on the seabed, like uh, submarine warning nets and stuff like that. And if you put a little reactor or something called a, a, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator 
uh, down there. You can power that stuff for a long time. What's a long time? Ten years, a thousand years, ten years, something like that. So, like, our, like the 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 thing I just mentioned, the radioisotope generator. It's called an RTG. We'll call it that for the rest of this podcast. It's used in spacecraft a lot, like deep space probes. Like NASA, NASA uses them sometimes to power Mars rovers when they're not being solar powered. You know, one of these things had a nice little appearance in The Martian, if you, as you may recall. He goes out looking for a power source, and he, he talks about an RTG. Oh, that's what he uses to heat, heat himself? Yeah, that thing. That's an RTG. Okay, he wraps it in tinfoil and sticks it sticks in the back seat. Yeah, and so what it does is it, you know, radioactive decay in a shielded container gives off heat, and you convert that heat into electricity. It's not super strong, but you can power stuff with it. And so something like that. Like that kind of technology I don't think would be used in a nuclear-powered cruise missile. But that kind of technology aligns closer with some of the official statements we've got from Ross Adam, the state nuclear company thing, concern, whatever, that is handling this stuff, working with the military. They work with like Roscosmos, too, on some of the space nuclear engine projects that people have talked about. And so the reason that I do not think it was Skyfall or that I'm at least willing to entertain other possibilities at the moment. I've already mentioned that one of the scenarios is, is that it was Skyfall, but the Skyfall uses some other type of propulsion that was not in sort of what I call the mainstream understanding of this hypothetical thing none of us have ever really seen. The other possibility was something else. We've mentioned Poseidon, the nuclear death torpedo drone thing. We've mentioned atomic batteries for C4 stuff. There's a, another possibility that I personally find much more compelling that I think was reflected today in an Izvestia article, and that would be using an RTG somehow to spark or to help maintain thermodynamics within a standard liquid-fueled missile or rocket engine. This squares quite nicely with Ross Adams' own statements, vague as they have been. The first time that we got... Because from the start, they were like, it involved liquid fuel. This is from the military. And so it wasn't clear what involving a liquid fuel rocket engine would release a very temporary, clearly localized radiation spike. So there had to be something there. Ross Adam on Saturday, two days after the incident, came out with a vague statement confirming that they five of their specialists died in whatever happened. And that they described it as an isotopic power source for or somehow related to a liquid fuel propulsion system. This is very, whatever that is, this is not something standard. It's still confusing. There was more, more detail kind of hinted at by uh, another statement from the head of the research institute working that the, the five specialists work for, gave a video statement on Sunday in which he didn't explicitly like say what they were working on. You know, there have been reports that he specifically attributed it to a missile. That's, like, not true. What he did say is he kind of elaborated on some of the projects that they're doing. And there were two things he mentioned specifically. RTGs, new new kinds of RTGs using different isotopes for various reasons, I don't know. And then a, a small nuclear reactor, similar, specifically, a small nuclear reactor similar to something NASA is working on called kilopower. It's just a new kind of very tiny reactor you could put into spacecraft. And he mentioned that there are space applications for this. And then he jumps from that to saying, you know, at least we're not going to have this kind of accident happen again. So there was, to me, a strong inference that what they were working on were one of these two devices. And then today's Zvesti article, again, hinted about some kind of test involving a propulsion system that used either an RTG or a small reactor 
to somehow improve a liquid fuel rocket engine. I'm going to be honest, I don't know exactly how that would work. <laughs> so then if then they can then claim it's an it's a nuclear powered rocket but really it's just a sort of nuclear starter pistol for a standard. Yeah, that's that's fuel rocket. That's basically what I took away from these STO articles. And they do you know what the advantage of that would be? What it could take off faster or is that the thing? Cuz the missiles are most vulnerable when they're launching. There's a few things. So like uh, in military applications, solid fuel very generally speaking has an advantage over liquid fuel and that it's storable. You can you build the missile, you put in the solid rocket fuel, and you stick it underground. You put it on a trailer or something, and you hold it away largely until you need to use it. Obviously, there needs to be checks. I'm sure they need to be refurbished on now and then, but it's ready to go. That's the point. Liquid fuel, depending on the kind of liquid fuel you use, is not ready to go. You can't leave it in the tank. You can't leave it in the tank. If you do have it in the tank, you need to cool the tank. And so if you're going to do that, you need to always have the tank being cooled, right? And so like a liquid-fueled ICBM, if you're driving it around, you need to stop, park, put it up, fuel it, and then go. Russia does have things like that. American missiles and the silos need to be fueled before they go, unless they're using solid fuel. And so that's that's the thing. And, and uh, yeah, like space rockets. This is, this is what we see with space rockets. They have to fuel the thing just before launch because it's... You know, you don't want to leave it sitting out there. You need to have everything. The temperature is extremely important. So I guess theoretically, like, the advantage would be, one advantage of having an RTG in this kind of thing would be you have an inf- a very long-lasting power source for maintaining that balance. There's also something suggested in the Asvestia article about, again, like like you said, like a starter pistol, that it would somehow be a more efficient means of sparking the combustion between the oxidizer and the liquid fuel, which is how a rocket engine works. You know, I'm not an engineer, so I, I don't know if there's actually a real advantage to that. So, like, this story in itself could be bullshit meant to distract us from Skyfall. <laughs> like, I, and that's why this story is horrible. So where does the where do you think the military goes from here? Like, is this a, a massive failure for the Russian military, or did they succeed because now everybody's talking about Skyfall again and Russia's killer weapons? Yeah, they'll keep going, I assume. Things happen when you're testing new new technology, I think especially if it's, you know, crazy 1950s comic book shit, I think that we'll see more. We'll, I think we'll see another test of whatever was going to, whatever they were testing. We might not hear anything about it if it doesn't blow up. But yeah, I don't think that this is a serious discouragement from whatever they were doing. And again, like, and, and so like one more point against the Skyfall thing is if the thing is failing, like I mentioned earlier, it just doesn't make sense to test it closer to population centers. I think whatever was being tested was much smaller scale. And though there have been detections of radiation issues around, they they really seem very localized, brief in one place. You know, today there's reports that the Norwegian Radiation Authority picked up uh, radioactive iodine traces in the atmosphere, and everyone kind of picked up on that. Again, really looking for the, the Chernobyl angle that I do not believe is there. But they also said in that statement, they pick up readings like this six to eight times a year. And it's almost always like when this specific element is found alone in isolation, it's almost always attributed to runoff from pharmaceutical production of some sort. And so it's not even clear that that's related. And so I think whatever happened, happens. It's cleared now. There was a suggestion that something was going to happen yesterday, like Tuesday afternoon. Uh, residents of the town near the area, near the test range where we think this happens, were told to prepare for a two-hour evacuation on on Wednesday morning. And then apparently the military backtracked. Like the head of the town said that he got a call from the test range commander and said, uh, 
you know, hey, uh, we're not going to do whatever planned activity we had. So, I mean, I don't know, like maybe like they had a testing program pre-approved, including the one that failed, followed up by the one that they were going to do on Wednesday. And nobody thought to cancel it until until Tuesday night when people started freaking out. They're going to continue, I think, whatever was going on, especially if it was Skyfall. But we just don't know. That's my interview with Matt Bodner, a journalist in Moscow who reports on national defense and the space industry. You can find a hyperlink in the description of today's episode that leads to Matt's story at Defense News about Russia's recent R&D accident. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider skipping over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock where you can make a contribution. Thank you to everybody already pitching in. By the way, I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter. I always say this, but it's true. If ever you have a comment or a question about the show, as always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Ой-да-да!